Savage Wonder is a podcast about warriors and artists. It's long-form one-on-one conversations with people who have a foot in both the world of the artist and the world of the warrior. It's produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to come together to create live theater and events that we find to be compelling in nature. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the Artistic Director at VetRep. And today, I talked with Dr. Donnelly Wilkes. He is the author of Code Red Fallujah, a doctor's memoir at war. Dr. Wilkes is a California native. He's board certified by the American Board of Family Medicine. He got his bachelor's degree from the University of California, Irvine, and his medical degree from the Tulane School of Medicine on a full Navy scholarship. And following medical school, he served seven years on active duty, including two combat tours to Iraq, one in 2004, one in 2008. And he was awarded the Navy Commendation Medal with Valor for his actions in the Battle of Fallujah in April of 2004. He completed his naval service as a lieutenant commander and was honorably discharged. Now he is the president and medical director of Summit Health Group in Thousand Oaks, California. And obviously, we're going to talk a lot more about what he discusses in the book than his ensuing medical career. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of bleed over. Uh, and he is a proud uh, doctor and, a, and, and, and a, you know, very proud of his medical background. Uh, I'm going to caveat and say I am incredibly sleep deprived right now. So if there's malaprops that come out and if there's a couple of brain farts, I apologize in advance. Um, But nothing that's going to get in your way of enjoying what Dr. Wilkes has to say. Um, I'm going to try to make a point that I tried to make on the show, and I'm not sure how articulate I was when I tried it on the show. So I'm going to take another bite at the apple now. Um, I think there's two general buckets of war memoirs these days. One is uh, a a type of war memoir that is, uh, you know, almost Marvel superhero quality. Uh, You know, you take a super heroic figure like a Navy SEAL or a Delta commando or something like that, and you put them into an extreme situation. And it's just an incredible jaw dropping, uh, eye opening, uh, uh, adrenaline pumping memoir that uh, I gobble up. I read those like every chance I can get. They're fascinating. Um, They're like candy. They're um, incredibly interesting and um, often can't help but get a little bit philosophical just because uh, you you start to really understand the operating system of people of, you know, uh, kind of super heroic figures that are in extremely bad situations. So you start to see what their operating system is and what, what it is that makes them tick and, and why they do what they do. And all of that is awesome and cool. But then there's another kind of war memoir, which I find to be difficult to pull off. And when it's done right, it is incredibly rewarding. And I'm thinking of war memoirs like Redeployment by Phil Clay or Code Red Fallujah by Dr. Donnelly Wilkes. Um, And the Dr. Wilkes book falls into this category because it's, it is more literary in nature. And it's also incredibly nuanced about uh, the nature of war. There's a lot of vulnerability in what he writes about. We talk about it in the episode, but there's, he really exposes, um, you know, all the very real human emotions that I think anybody can relate to of what it means to be a normal person in extraordinarily 
difficult search circumstances and how to and what his operating system was to get through that but it's also um it's nuanced and it's a it's a interesting and articulate portrait of um guys at war and what that means and uh and all the colors that that involves so i won't say too much more about it i'll leave that for dr wilkes sit back and get ready to enjoy the savage wonder of dr donnelly wilkes All right, Dr. Donnelly Wilkes, how are you? Fantastic. Great to see you, Chris. Hey, it's great to see you. And um, I know we did Weekly Havoc together, and that was a good toe dip in the water. And now I want to plunge full full, uh, full body into Code Red Fallujah, which uh, obviously is your book. I went through the trouble of reading it, and it was really no trouble. It was a delightful um, book. It's a hard book. It's a tough book. Um, but man, that was a uh, really interesting read. And I want to start, I think, by using that book as kind of a framework to walk through a whole bunch of issues that that, that book brought up for me. First, I want to start with this. Do you consider yourself an artist at all for having written that book? That's an interesting question. I, I've been thinking about that a little bit recently because it's come up in a few interviews. And when I described myself in action a couple times, uh, and when I was thinking about operating in a combat environment, um, the art of medicine is real to me because I found that I had to think about it that way to be successful. So so to segue into that, I do think there's an art of medicine and you craft it and mold it and use it in your own way. And then I guess your question was more about the book. Do I consider myself an artist? Um, not as much as, as the art of medicine, but, sure. I, but I definitely had to pull out that author craft from, from my, you know, my high school and college days to put the words into vivid picture for the reader. So that part was an art. Well, and also I'm going to, I'm going to ping something pinged early on in the book that I want to ask you about. Um, you talked about walking the garden district before you got out of med school in, and you were down in new Orleans and you said you walked along the levee, you took photographs and one of them sells for a hundred dollars at a coffee shop. So I was like, it's kind of seems like there was a part of you that was looking that has always kind of been about expression and finding self-expression and making sure that you communicate that in some medium. Am I overthinking that or is that a fair assessment? No, that's very fair. You're right. I, th I think my my journey, my adventure, you know, that was always uh, a part of me ex trying to express myself in different ways. You could even say find myself, you know, in different ways. And that's what took me to Louisiana, to New Orleans. Um, it was in the pursuit of medicine. It was in the pursuit of adventure. And it was in the pursuit of of the beauty, the beauty in this um, in this country of ours. I just wanted to see different things. So you're right. The um, the artistry has come out in my life, probably more so than I would have ever admitted or thought on my own. And yeah. photography was a part of that, especially in New Orleans. You know, it's funny because I, I actually I've talked about this with Charlie Faint um, at the Havoc Journal uh, a bunch, but 
that that kind of precedent that was set from people that generally don't exist anymore. There's a very rare archetype, but well-known writers and artists that had fascinating life stories and didn't intend to be artists, but it's just that was the, the natural outgrowth of their life. And I'm thinking of people like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle that wrote Sherlock Holmes. You know, he also authored like six volumes of British naval history. And and he went on deployments with the British Navy to Crimea. Um, Joseph Conrad, who spoke like six languages and was a ship's captain, and then, of course, wrote um, all the, the classic books that he wrote. And it's, it's I, I feel like in the last 20 years with this veteran cast that mm-hmm. has come out of the last 20 years, um, as veterans start to express themselves, and I'm putting you not just in that category, but at the forefront of that category, you kind of find yourself as an accidental artist because it's kind of the culmination of your life's work in other forms, right? And then the art kind of goes, art's just the final step, the final packaging that allows you to communicate that experiential knowledge and wisdom in a different format for people to learn from. Am I, does that make sense? Yeah, it's, it's great. You know how you're putting that together. I think you're right. You know, veterans have this need to communicate and express themselves and maybe by the general public, often it's kind of this one dimensional image of of a veteran and what they do, you know, that they're in this military community, a warrior, so to speak, and they go off and do that. And and that's kind of the end of it. Well, we're we're seeing this extension, um, like you said, in the last 20 years of veterans writing, making movies, just telling their stories in different ways. And, and that's a beautiful thing because telling your story is what life's all about. You know, everybody's got one. Yeah. Everybody has a story. Yeah. And it's fun to see the unique stories come out in our veterans. Yeah. And I think, I mean, to be a little partisan in favor of veterans specifically on their stories is I think, you know, I think what makes a veteran is the their view, their experience of life in the extremes. Mm-hmm. And it's not that people that never served in the military or law enforcement don't have that background necessarily, but usually that's one key moment of their life or one specific really bad day. Um, you know, that time that they, you know, got in a car crash or something like that. But it's, it's, I think the, the consistent repeated exposure to the extremes of the human condition that really is what makes the veteran. Um, and therefore, what makes the veterans' art more poignant, um, even if they're not talking about their experience, there's kind of a depth and a gravitas to it, I think, just because it, it's, a, it's a very lived experience, and, that, and you never really shake that in anything else you do. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It sticks with you forever. I like to say the best thing I love about you know the military and our, our veteran community is you, you take a... a thousand or a hundred thousand young professionals you teach them this very unique skill and you put them in in impossible situations hmm. and yeah. you know um, hope that they thrive and we do because that's what we've done in, in our entire military history uh, but I love that part of it because you have to grow up quick you have to thrive yeah. especially the when you're put in leadership roles and um, that's how we accomplish great things within our yeah. veteran community Look, you're right. Uh, I want to get into the book. And as I told you kind of right before we we started recording, uh, it's it's a pet peeve of mine that when authors come on podcasts or shows, uh, they're forced to kind of 
talk in depth about their book and give away all the spoilers and and you know maybe there's one little piece of information that's held back but pretty much you know people almost don't even have to buy the book so I don't want to do that um, but I want to kind of deal with some things that I think we can develop the picture on that piqued my interest in the book specifically and I think it'll give people a good taste of how interesting this book is so they go out read it and and get the full spectrum treatment of it uh, without me spoiling any of that for them. So let me start with your very first chapter, which to me, I got to be honest, I was like, I could have heard maybe three or four more chapters on what you just covered in the first chapter alone. And let me, let me go right to uh, the phrase, the the little paragraph that I I did a double take on. Um, So you talk, you're living in New Orleans, you're going to med school and you kind of casually throw out there that you were held up at gunpoint on St. Charles Avenue, although you escaped unscathed. You delivered a baby in the Louisiana boondocks. You escorted a Southern princess to a debutante ball, and you walked eight miles in a crawfish suit at a Mardi Gras parade. To me, that's um, four different short stories, at least, that you could have mined out of that that I I think would have been fascinating. So I'm going to try to hold your feet to the fire on that a little bit. Talk to me a little bit about that and talk to me also about your decision to kind of blithely say, oh, by the way, here's these four wildly different uh, extreme situations. And and yeah, this was kind of my experience in New Orleans while I'm at law school. Yeah. Um, Thanks for that. Um, Med school. But med school. My bad. My bad. Yeah. Sorry. Although Tulane has a great law school. So, yeah, I was in that first chapter painting the picture of, of life in New Orleans. And I, I needed to do that in, you know, one chapter. But I was just setting it up there because um, New Orleans is such a unique place with such um, amazing experiences, some good, some bad, a great training ground to be a physician because of its unique um, location in the United States, uh, the socioeconomic environment there. Tulane is a wonderful school that has ties to multiple hospitals, and that's where we train, including a veterans hospital, Charity, one of the oldest um, community hospitals in the United States, and Tulane University Hospital. So you just get this sure. this wide variety of experience. And then the city, it just consumes you. Anybody who's lived there, it takes a little while to get used to it. It took me a year, full year, to really be comfortable living there. And then um, it's just doors wide open for adventure there. And and that's how it felt because I kind of went there um, sight unseen. I went once prior to committing to med school and the Navy uh, in New Orleans, and uh, I knew nobody. And so it was, it was taking a chance for me. And I just wanted to set that up for the reader of what it was like to live there. And it was wild, you know, to a certain extent. As you saw, I, I did get held up at gunpoint. Uh, Mardi Gras is its own thing, of course, and, and beautiful and colorful. The people are beautiful and colorful. And um, that was life there. And I, I loved it. It certainly had its challenges. But all those things, those little tidbits that I threw out there were just kind of uh, broad stroke painting that picture of what it was like to live in New Orleans. So I want to ask you specifically about getting held up at gunpoint. And that's because obviously the bulk of your book is about war and about life and death issues. So you, it's kind of interesting that here was a life or a death situation that you ran into as kind of a precursor to your deployment without even knowing it. So talk to me about that and 
if any of that, what was your what were your takeaways from that? Just describe what that incident was and, and how that affected your mindset, or did it change anything for you, or 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 not? Sure, we're sitting um, at a table outside on St. Charles Street, which is the main street that has uh, the trolley car going into downtown New Orleans. We're outside um, a bar. Uh, it's a, it was a nice evening, probably 10, 11 p.m. We're on the sidewalk at a long rectangular table, about 10 of me and my friends. I'm at one end of the long table, and then friends around the sides, and my buddy, Brett Wilson, is on the other end. Well, we're all just chatting, having some, some food, drinking a beer, and from kind of out of nowhere, a gentleman walks up to the other end of the table where Brett's sitting, and he just kind of casually starts saying something to him. And he's got, you know, a black hoodie on and just looks a little bit shady. And he's just kind of nudging my friend Brett and it doesn't look it doesn't look friendly. And I say, hey, Brett, what's going on? Because I noticed I noticed this wasn't right. Nobody else really even was paying attention or saw this this guy come up. Everybody else was just talking. They're just Yeah, because it was, (laughs) you know, it wasn't a uh, dark alley or anything. Right. People people were out and about. (laughs) <laughs> so I said, Hey Brett, what's going on? And he looks up at me and his, you know, his, I could tell his face was kind of stunned. And he said, this guy says we got to give him all our money or he's going to kill us. <laughs> and at that moment, <laughs> the guy from his pocket on his, on his uh, sweatshirt, he pulls out a pistol from his, his pocket and shows the whole table. And so I, I'm just looking at this guy and my friends around the side, they start getting out their wallets I'm I'm far enough away that he's not paying attention to me. My back is really close to the door of this bar of this establishment. So I just kind of slow slightly lean back and roll out of my chair. I kind of do a roll move right out of my chair into the bar and yell for them to call the cops. (laughs) And that kind of stirs things and he gets spooked and he runs off. (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, that's a night in New Orleans. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So, so what did uh, so talk to me about that? I mean, I, obviously, I mean, we're, I'm laughing because obviously I, I know everything worked out. But what what was your takeaway after that? I mean, were you were was your friend shaken? Were you shaken? Was were you kind of doing some bedside manner and calming everybody down after? What, what was the immediate after effects? We we were shaken, you know, shaken up because this guy had a it was a real pistol. That's for sure, and. You know, the word kill was used and we were just, you know, enjoying ourselves and out of nowhere, <laughs> you get your life threatened. So it, it changed, you know, just my perspective of living there a little bit, of keeping my guard up, of having a, a sense of my surroundings more. And I always had that a little bit. And, and I think that's why, you know, I took action in, you know, try, trying mm-hmm. to get help. But I also yeah. looked at my actions and questioned, like, was that the right thing, you know, to to make that move? Would could that have caused him to do something drastic or rash? Should I have just sure. thrown out my money? So it definitely made me think about my environment more and and uh, just self awareness uh, of living in New Orleans. But uh, beyond that, you know, I wasn't scarred from it. The cops came. We had to, you know, look at a, a lineup of pictures the next day. I think I think they found you know the perpetrator, but that was the mm-hmm. last I heard of it. I'm kind of interested in the doctor mindset in general, and obviously you weren't a doctor at the time; you were still in med school. But but had you internalized some of that 
for lack of a better word, command authority that doctors seem to have that ability to, um, you know, be calm in the face of danger and in the face of trauma. It was, it, did that at all play a role in that incident um, where you were like, hey, you know something under stress in pressure, um, I can perform, I can see options, I can take action. And um, I'm, you know, in the game, but not of the game. Was there any, any sense of that? I think so. You know, looking back, I was a young man, but I did have a little bit of that uh, in me from a young age, you know, liking to be in leadership roles, not afraid to speak up, uh, enjoy, enjoying, you know, working with other people. But at the same time, um, still understanding what it is to be a good leader, what it is to have humility and be a good leader and elevate those around you um, because that's the essence of what good leaders do. And so, yeah, I was developing that craft in medical school. And I think I think um, the history of medical training does that really well because every medical student is forced to give presentations to large audiences in stressful situations with with very respected, well-renowned doctors up in the front, you know, critiquing what you do, knowing that if you, you know, give a wrong assessment that you're going to hear about it in front of everybody. And that's okay. You have to be able to take criticism and and move on. And then, yes, um, understanding how to operate in situations, you're you're just thrown into that by going into surgeries, um, by being in group environments with sick people, or even trauma cases, you know, we would go through rotations yeah. in emergency rooms and New Orleans had a lot of that. So, so yes, I was in that training ground from, from day one in medical school and I loved it. I thrived in it. Not everybody did. And so they'd choose uh, professions or um, different uh, specialties that maybe didn't require that kind of skill. Maybe it's being a radiologist or a pathologist, but I moved towards uh, being in the public eye or being on center stage and I liked it. I thrived in that. And it seems again, I'm not I'm not trying to read too much into this or, or play amateur psychiatrist here, but I think one of the things that stood out to me in the book was when you talked about your dad and you said at age thirty-nine he was accepted in into the Sacramento Sheriff's Training Academy. And it had been his dream that that was his dream and he and it took him till thirty-nine to do. So he's going into a physical line of work at a later age. I wonder how much that need to serve filtered through you and not just serve. I mean, a lot of, you know, garbage men serve. I mean, everybody's, you know, has, has social value, but serve in um, life or death professions. Was, were you an acorn that didn't fall far from the tree? Yeah, I was for sure. And, you know, I, I do allude to that in, in the book. I think, um, I think you're kind of born with that service, <laughs> you know, gene, and uh, yeah. some of it's nurtured, and that's a big question, nature versus nurture. But, you know, I had sure. four brothers, and um, we've all had service within our, our blood. I chose, you know, medicine and military. And, and yes, you know, my father's dream to serve and seeing him do that in his life, you know, helped push me in the direction of service uh, and, and just adventure in general, of pushing myself higher and higher, seeing how far I could take my education, medicine. There was many years when I didn't think I, you know medicine was going to happen for me, but I, mm. but I just kept pushing it and and finally got through that door. And then the military was the next step in my path. I want to stay with your dad for one second, only because I thought it was. I, I think there's a incredibly rare quality of a person whose dream is to be in public service in a life or death profession, 
and what it takes to keep that motivation so high, especially at an older age to go into the academy at 39, um, that you're not, you know, a young 20 something that's feeling in their physical prime. You're somebody that's starting to become aware of middle age and what that home environment must have been like to get to your point about nature versus nurture. I mean, a dad that is getting close to middle age and still preparing for life and death work, I would imagine is a very different household to grow up in than somebody who at 39 maybe has, you know, getting close to his 20 years or in, in, in the police and is maybe starting to think about next steps or second careers or more administrative roles. Was that the case? Yeah, it was a big decision for my parents and, and it was intense at times. He, like many young um, sheriffs or, uh, or police officers, had to work the graveyard shifts and things like that. So I wouldn't see him for days sometimes or, you know, he'd come home in the middle of the night. Um, he'd tell us stories. Uh, you know, my mom was challenged with, with that life later in life. Five boys at home, all in sports mm. and school and things like that. Yeah. Um, but I think the department valued his experience as, you know, an, an older sheriff bringing that knowledge and wisdom into the department. And I think my dad liked it too, you know, kind of, um, being a little bit of a father figure, you know, to some of the younger recruits. I'll tell you a mm. funny story about my dad, um, that just drives home his, his desire to serve. When I went to Iraq the first time, you know, I had two deployments so the first time he wrote a letter to Governor Schwarzenegger at that time <laughs> requesting to be because because he had an age limitation to join the military, requesting to have a waiver of the age limitation so he could potentially join and go and go serve in Iraq. Wow. <laughs> I laugh really? about it because he sent me a copy and I, I'm pretty sure I got that copy while I was in Iraq. And my initial <laughs> reaction was what the hell, dad, what are you doing? I'm here. Isn't that enough? You know, and I was understanding the gravity of my situation being there. And anyways, I was like, oh, dad, my Lord. I, I think one mil, mil, you know, family member in Iraq right now is enough. <laughs> that is so, you know, it's funny. I was actually thinking earlier today, just uh, randomly, I, I was thinking about what it must be like or what it would be like for uh, veterans that did their 20 years from say 1975 to 1995 and then to see 9-11 happen and everything else happen and go, God, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of past it, but geez, that was kind of what I, that's the game I was, I was yeah. trying to get ready for. And it seems like, uh, you know, your dad maybe had a touch of that where he was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm down for that fight. And, uh, and I, I think I can make the, I think age is just a number and I can make this work if, if you guys will give me a chance. Yeah. It's a funny, it's a funny psychology, but I, um, anyway, I want, I want to stay with your family for one second, just because you also mentioned that you have an identical twin. And obviously all the ramifications that come with having an identical twin, the special bonds and all that, You wrote you, your book is one incredible experience of wartime service and courage and trauma and the things you've seen. How much did Riley, did your identical twin relate to that? How much of that did he intuit? How much, what was the effect on him and how much was he uh, able to be a support um, to you uh, before, during, and after those experiences? Yeah, my family and Riley were, were and always have been a great support to me. 
You know, it's interesting. We've never dove into how he felt too much, and I probably should do that with him. We have we have talked a lot about what it's like um, and and what your identity is like being twins, because mm-hmm. our our identities are are of course our our individual selves, but then they are our our twin brotherhood as well, and um, that's a unique experience. So. I know that it was hard for him, and uh, at times he said, he said very candidly to me, you know, thanks, brother, you kept me strong when you were, you know, mm-hmm. in harm's way, which I did, you know, it, with my family. I wanted them to know that even though that that it was a really challenging and sometimes scary, horrific time, that I was where I was meant to be, and that that was a, a journey through the book. I talk about you know struggling with that, you know, with my yeah. with the extreme forward nature of my position and coming to grips with it. But I wanted him to know I was okay, no matter what happened. And I even wrote a letter to my father at one point in Iraq saying, "Hey, Dad, um, this place is nuts. I'll tell you more later. But I want you to know I am I am at peace with whatever happens." Is really what I yeah. said in the letter. Yeah. And he got the picture. He understood. Let's pull back to something um, less personal for a second. Um, let's talk about when 9-11 actually happened and your emotions uh, that day when you were walking around, still having to do your rounds and everyone is kind of in shock and looking at the screens and all that. Um Obviously, it was a big moment for you. You had already signed on the dotted line for the Navy, so you knew that this was going to impact your life in very real ways going forward. Now, we're sitting here talking, um, you know, a couple weeks or whatever it is, 10 days, two weeks after we've uh, you know started to pull out of Afghanistan and now we are officially out. How are you feeling about everything um, and seeing the GWAT wind down unceremoniously. Yeah. It's been heavy these last couple of weeks. And, um, you know, even the timing of our interview here coming up to the 20th anniversary of 9-11 makes yeah. it heavier. Uh, I've been reflecting a lot about my time in the military the last 20 years, what's happened since 9-11. And um, I've, had a, I've had a tough time, I'll be honest, with what's happened over in Afghanistan, that winding down. Um, I don't think it's any surprise. My feelings are it didn't nor should have ever gone down that way. I have been, you know, I've spent nearly a year and a half of my life in a combat theater. Uh, I've been, excuse me, I've been at a couple bases in Iraq where we had to egress, close down the base, literally wipe it clean and leave the base. I was part of that. I I was responsible for the medical, you know, unit and and, um, removing all of our supplies, equipment, every man, every woman, every bullet. And we did that. So I understand a little bit of what that's like. I also convoyed for three days from Kuwait up into Fallujah. So I know what it's like to be on a convoy where every single piece of equipment is on our person. So to see a 20-year campaign end the way it did makes me furious and um, extremely sad for, for the Afghan people, for our military members, and, and, and to be Americans, you know, and, and uh, be a civilian and watch it all happen because the best of the best uh, should not have let it uh, come down that way. With that said, I'm an optimist and there's many reasons to be proud of, of our military, of course, and, and, and have optimism moving forward, even in the face of this, of this um, 
poor representation of leadership. Yeah, I I agree. And without getting too, um, I guess, in the weeds on on the specific policies and all that, I, I wanted to actually throw go to one of the things you talked about when you first arrived in Iraq. You said you're at the camp, and I think this was Camp Mercury, um, was previously one of Saddam's terrorist training camps before U.S. forces took it over. And that stood out to me for several reasons. One, because I think most people, um, even people that would not consider themselves low-information voters or uh, people that consider themselves savvy on the news, would not know what you're talking about. And before I have you explain exactly what you're talking about, um, I, I also want to throw out I think it's it's a similar problem that you were seeing in Afghanistan that people don't necessarily understand the ramifications of all the entities operating there, what they do, same as in Iraq. So as a result, the wars don't make a lot of sense to people because they don't necessarily understand um, all the political pieces in play in those countries and all the different bad guys that we're dealing with. So with that as, as preface, tell us, if you don't mind, about the, who were the terrorists that Saddam was training in that camp when you identified as a former terrorist training camp? <clears throat> yeah, so when we, when our convoy rolled up into Fallujah from Kuwait, we were taking over this camp that was occupied by an army unit. The Marines were brought into Fallujah because things weren't going well. So 1st Marine Division was taking it over. And... Um, the field commanding officer at that time was General Mattis, who I also talk about in the book because he came into our camp and gave us orders into Fallujah. So my understanding of that camp is that as far as who we were fighting you know, in Iraq, who were the insurgents, it was this amalgam of different entities. Some were Saddam loyalists. Some were mercenaries. Some were uh, terrorists just paid lump sums, lump sums of money to carry out uh, attacks on U.S. forces. I don't know specifically, you know, uh, which of those were in that camp because it had been a couple years prior to my arrival. But it was sure. just one of the little entities, the little training centers that, that these insurgents and terrorists used. And uh, that that's where we operated out of because it was very proximal to Fallujah, just a you know, mile and a half, two miles away. Yeah. And I think um, and again, the reason I ask is because I think it's important for people to understand that um, these are not necessarily just nation state actors that we're dealing with, that there's a lot of proxy forces and there's a lot of people in that game, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's and I was I was appreciative that you took the time just to kind of put a little speed bump in people's minds. You could have just phrased that as, uh, hey, we came to one of Saddam's old bases. But the fact that you took the time to say one of Saddam's terrorist training camps before we took it over, I think is enough of a speed bump to make the casual reader slow down and go, wait, who, who was there? I thought everybody was just, I thought it was Saddam against us or, or you know, yeah, and, and not really track all the geopolitical complications that happened in the, in the GWAT. Um, so I, I appreciated you saying that. And and thanks for explaining um, kind of what you meant by that. I want to go to um, a little bit of craft stuff uh, because I think, and it, I, you know, it's funny when I was reading the book, I um, it had been a while since I had read a war memorial 
uh, a world war um, memoir. Sorry, <laughs> not enough sleep last night. Uh, war, war memoir, and uh, a lot of the ones you know, like most red-blooded Americans, a lot of the war memoirs that I'd read were special operations related. You know, uh, you know, I talked before the show about Marcus Luttrell, and you know, obviously his book Lone Survivor was was epic, and and those are incredibly accessible, sexy books to read because of the nature of the, their missions um, and the nature of the individuals involved and uh, just the physical extremes that they go through. So they all, their origin stories are almost Marvel quality, super heroic. And then you get into this unbelievable action based story. But what I really appreciate and what I think is, is important for not just the civilian readership, but for veterans to understand is the value in everyone's service. And you are incredibly humble and straightforward about your fears, your vulnerabilities, um, your desires. And as a result, you're a very relatable character in your own book that I think any reader can identify with very quickly. Um, And you're a normal person thrust into an extraordinary circumstance and you overcome it and and succeed in it and do noble work. Um, and I think there's something great about that. I think there's that's, that's a story with an awful lot of purpose and something that people can draw on that you don't need to go through buds to um, be a value or and be a value in the military and be effective in combat and in a combat zone. On a literary level, though, I also think that what you bring to it is is a bit of poetry that um, makes it an enjoyable read, and I find to be um, superior writing. And I wanted to ask you so about that because I think that's something worth dwelling on a little bit. First, what was your literary background? Are you a reader? Are you somebody that reads a lot of books? Or had you been a writer throughout your high school and college years? What, what was your background with literature in general? My background in high school and college was a student of, of um, writing, I would say. And I was good at it. And in fact, on the, on the MCAT, the entrance test to medical school, there's a writing section. And I always performed top ranks in that section even better than in the sciences so i I had that skill and i enjoyed writing um from from the time i was a young age as far as being a reader you know once my focus became medicine which was kind of in high school my my reading was just consumed by by my studies and so that was that was um the focus of my my reading but i would always pick up books when i could on the side and um and and dive into one here and there because i love kind of losing myself in the adventure of it and then you know in in medical school and even on deployment i started reading um historical mostly nonfiction, Mm -hmm. some fiction Mm -hmm. but but a lot of nonfiction. i love you know some of the stories about our own nation um john adams you know some of david mccullough's books i just love the history of you know the revolution and the origins of our country, because it's just this unbelievable, almost impossible story of how our nation came to be and the, and the men and women that gave their lives in impossible situations and, yeah. and you know, achieved victory. So anyways, that was where my love of literature blossomed. 
No, I'm I'm really glad you said that because I I couldn't agree more. There's something, uh, I'm a sporadic intellect myself. There there's times where I like to be really eggheady about stuff, and then I'll space out and jock out for a minute and not and not do any reading for years. And what I found is on deployment, I think be, uh, my ability to read got a lot better. And I think because it was focused. And to your point about what you were reading and the subjects you were reading about, how much did being in a war zone contribute to your appreciation of books about the founding of the country and the revolution where you're like, hey, suddenly the revolution's not just this um, kind of antiseptic historical circumstance, but it's like, oh yeah, there's blood in that. Yeah, there's, this is war and this is your life on the line and your family's life on the line. And it becomes or, or uh, you you become kind of viscerally uh, involved and engaged and aware of exactly how high those stakes were. Yes, it, uh, uh, to answer your question, a lot. It it you know r- reading about our nation's history and then being a part of our nation's history, yeah, really just spoke to me, and I found myself pinching myself some days because I didn't. You never could have told me that my story would would take yeah. the path that it did. And in the book, I talk about how that was part of the glory and it was part of the struggle uh, of, of just all of a sudden being thrust into this extreme environment. And as a physician, you know, the unique part of my story is that there just have been only a handful of, you know, military physicians who have had the opportunity. And I really um, believe that yeah. because like you alluded to earlier, a lot of people in the military or other professions, they train, train, train for the most intense extreme situations, but they may not get a chance to practice their training or their craft. And I did. And I was able to put years of, of um, training into into action. And not a lot of military doctors have had the chance to do that or be as close to combat as I did. And although it was um, extremely challenging and at times I was doing the why me, God, how is it? Um, (laughs) In the end, I knew it was where I was supposed to be, where I was meant to be. And I felt blessed to have been through it and (laughs) survived mentally and physically. Well, it's funny. You're kind of a living embodiment, I, I think, especially with your book of that old uh, recruiter statement, hey, don't just study history, make history, um, that they always tell you when you walk into um, you know recruiters' offices. But you did. You went in and you actually made history, and then you got to write history after the fact, which is a real um, blessing, I think, to a lot of people because you are speaking eloquently for an awful lot of folks. And um, um, and telling their stories uh, through your lens. I, 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 again, I mean, it's it's a it's a fascinating book. Did you get any assistance in the writing? Did you even just go, hey, let me take a writing class and just uh, you know a nonfiction class or something just to brush up and make sure you know my my craft is where I want it to be and I'm being as articulate as I need to be, or was this just? brute force, let me go through draft after draft after draft until it's honed to a place that I personally feel comfortable with it. It's mostly the brute force and the brief evolution of the book, because I think it's an interesting part of the story is I kept a field journal in Fallujah. And that was sometimes just notes on my men and events that happened. Sometimes it was thoughts and feelings. 
And then I just carried that journal with me and uh, kept notes throughout the deployment. I came home, I put it down, um, life kept rolling on, I was continuing my military commitment. And then my second deployment was a few years later, back to Iraq in 2008 and nine. And I took that field journal with me. And at that time, a lot of emotions were stirred from my first experience in Fallujah. And part of the hardship of deployment is just time, killing time. So that's when I decided to write the book as I was out in Al-Qaim on the border of Iraq and Syria. And I was thinking about a lot about that first deployment and it was very, very violent. And this deployment, I had a lot more downtime, not as violent. So I started writing and that's where the bones of the book were originated on that second deployment. And then I came home and I decided to write a little more. It was therapeutic. It helped get out some things that were in my head. And that was kind of it for a while. For years, I put it down and didn't do anything with it. And then at one point, a few years later, I, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to do something professional with this. I, I think I was understanding that it had been a very unique time in military history. And for yeah. military physicians, the Battle of Fallujah was was the largest of the 10-year Iraq war. So I, I, I then got serious and started writing a memoir. And it took a couple years and um, I didn't take any special classes. I just kind of used what I had learned over the years and always had a little bit of a knack for writing. But yes, I rewrote it a hundred times. You did. Yeah. I did. I did. I, and it, it was just an evolution over a few years. My wife will tell you it took forever. Um, but I, <laughs> but it was fun for me. And I would just sit there and sometimes I'd close my eyes and put the, the pen on the pad and just go back to that moment yeah. that the, the sights, the sounds, the smells from deployment in Iraq. And I would just free form. And that's how some of the most vivid imagery came out in, in the book. The hardest part, though, Chris, to your point was all the words, all the paragraphs, and just even the story. How do you make it flow in a in, in a in a mm. book that is a page turner and that reads well? Not that's a literary work of art, but that just reads well. And I never realized how hard that was to have things flow well, to not be extra wordy. So I I finally hired an editor out of New York, and I said, "Hey, mm. take a look at this." And so he just went through old school style, and he'd mark up with a red pen, you know commas, punctuation, etc. He didn't write any of it for me at all, but he would help bring out some things that I needed to. I, like, I want more combat action here. I need to know more about your dad, those kinds really? of things. That's how I got it to its final product. Was he the f- first person to see it besides you, to see any of it besides you? No, I I um, would print out the manuscript and show it to a few select people, like my, my family and... Okay. Um, a, f- a few a few different close people in my life and uh they didn't really give much feedback other than wow that's great you got to keep going kind of thing mm-hmm. i never had my wife read it nor did she ever i think want to she wanted to wait till the final mm-hmm. product came out so so huh. she she never read any of it until it was published when you gave it to friends and family uh, and that select group early on was it um one, were you doing it because you were actively trying to turn it into a book at that point? Or was it kind of notes and going, hey, this is going to say better than what I can verbalize what my experiences there were. And I just want to share this with you for almost therapeutic reasons. It was it was more of that. 
Yes, it was okay. it was a way to share my story because you know when you when you talk to someone and maybe even sit down for 10 20 minutes it's hard to really verbalize what you experienced what you felt things like that um so so the book and the writing was a way to express myself in, in ways that I hadn't been able to before. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I wanted to um look at one other piece uh, which I thought it, it it's not really craft based, but it, I thought it was really well. I was really glad you brought it up because I think it's one of these very delicate moments that people that haven't gone on deployments sometimes miss. And it was the moment when you talk about going through Barstow, California, mm-hmm. um, and and you talked about how there was that. Uh, I'm trying to find the exact. Here it is. The um, the lunch train, the the train car that was in Barstow that you'd kind of always wanted to stop at, but you never, your family never had time to stop there. And now you're going through it en route to a deployment and it hits you. Well, I'm not stopping there again and I'm going somewhere else. And it's that it's a delicate moment. I'm going to try to articulate it here uh, just for my own clarity, but it's that those moments where there's something very familiar to you that you look at through a completely different lens because of what's about to happen and what you know is about to happen and that you're in a different headspace. And it's, um, for me, it was a moment in a hotel where, uh, I I think, you know, careless whisper by George Michael came on and, you know, memories I had of, of that and that MTV world are there. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, yeah, but I'm, on a plane to Afghanistan in two seconds. And the song sounds different now because you're just, you're not in that space. I thought that was a beautiful moment. And I was really glad that you wrote that. And I don't have a question for you. I just wanted to highlight that. I thought that was a really great literary touch because it was, um, I think you captured that delicacy really, really well. Yeah. You, you nailed it on the head. It's nice to hear that, you know, that, that description you know, um, is translated into what I was feeling because you're right. I was going through this, this little familiar place that we had driven through a number of times as, as a kid going out into Arizona to water ski. And I'd always kind of had this longing that we had had stopped and had lunch, you know, in this train car. And here we are passing by again. And it, it was, it was just a moment of reflection of, wow, I missed that part of my childhood. Or maybe even I wish I was still in that part of my childhood and not yeah. sitting in the seat on this bus headed to Iraq. So I was reflecting on on where I had been and where I was going. And that's what I captured. Did you ever go back to it? Did you ever end up going there? No. <laughs> but I think I'll take my kids there. Yeah, I think you should. I, I yeah, I mean I feel like there's a you need to button that up. I know. You're that's right. really cool circle. moment. Totally. Um so a big part especially of the early part of the book is about your wife and about the difficulty leaving her. Um and that you guys eloped and <laughs> and, it, and it was a surprise to your family that you didn't reveal until the book came out. Yeah. Uh and and obviously that is incredibly relatable uh, for most people. I wanted to take a moment, though, just to talk about your perception of marriage in a combat deployment. And here's the the, the tack I'm, I'm looking at. I think there are certain guys 
who um, deploy a lot and either because they weren't as invested in their marriage to begin with or because the deployments demand that they can't be as invested as they would otherwise be, um, it makes it easier and easier to leave. And it's kind of an indicator when it's hard to leave that, hey, this marriage really is something. That's my, I'm throwing that out there. I'm not sure how much or how little I believe in that. Um, I'm thinking of certain data points when I say that. What's your take on that? Yeah. In other words, your question is on, on um, how... <laughs> Sorry, I was taking the scenic route to get to that question. Yeah. Well, my, my point just being, the in, in your view, how much is the a support of a strong marriage and a marriage you want to be in and you are deeply committed to and you've sacrificed so much for and leaving her? How much is that a help or a hindrance to you on deployment? And uh, yeah, and just the second and third order effects of being so tied to something that now you have to leave and how hard that is to do. Yeah. For me, it was certainly an anchor. And um, that is that anchor was solidified for us when we made that decision to tie the knot, you know, before we deployed. And the beauty for us of that decision was it was it was completely separate from anybody else in our lives. We knew that we were, you know, committing to each other uh, before I left for Iraq. Uh, I knew that I was um, kind of securing the girl, you know, in my in my world, yeah. which which I was going to do anyways. And why not do it now so that her and I could go through it together even more? Also, I had the um, the knowledge that she was going to be connected with the um, other military wives a yeah. lot better as as mm-hmm. as a wife and communication would be better. That was huge. Um, I, I also had financial obligations and that helped uh, solidify her as, you know, on my will and yeah. all kinds of good things. I And then, of course, my combat pay went up just a little bit as a married. <laughs> Not a lot. <laughs> so it all made sense. <laughs> So I don't want to I don't want to read too much into this, um, but it seemed to me that the lead up before your deployment and not right before when you guys start to get very sober about the impending deployment. But but prior to that, when you didn't know you might be deploying, um, it seemed like your courtship was very fun. You know, it was it was kids in love and it was uh, giddy and exciting and all that. Um to then go on a combat deployment so early in a marriage and come back from it, did you feel like you both had matured suddenly? Was there still, did you, did you were you like, hey, we're not the same people we were before then? Not that we're, you know, out of love, but just simply, you know, wow, we we are, you know, we're, we're different. We're, we're, we have more gravitas or something. Yeah, we were, you know, as you said, a young couple and my wife's younger than me. So she she was still, you know, very much in her early 20s. And it was a heavy event, no doubt. When I came home, I'll never forget when I saw her again, it was like it was like meeting her all over again because we had been Uh apart for so long. But yet still there was the girl that I I knew and loved. And it just... um, 
I can't ever explain how it bonded us, um, but it was very positive for us because we we did something that we didn't expect to do. Uh, and it, through this wrench in our life, we were planning on getting married and we had, you know, it just changed everything. And so to be able to uh, adapt to those hardships and overcome them, it just solidified that, you know, we were meant for each other because if we could go through this at an early stage, we kind of felt like, all right, we can, we can go through anything. We, yeah. we can, we can do life together. And, um, of course it, it, um, helped me see a part of her that I hadn't seen and develop, I, I think a respect for her kind mm. of committing t- to this journey with me. And by the t- same token, I think she felt the same way about me. And you know how you, you take, you know, even though you're married or date, it takes a decade to really fully know somebody. I don't know if you've experienced that in your life, but you're always finding out new things. Sure. Well, we were just catapult, you know, thrust yeah. into that. And, yeah. and that was really good for us. And, and honestly, I, I think it could be good for any couple, um, especially before kids, you know, to, to be thrust into some of these situations where you have to just yeah. come together and do, do it together. Otherwise, you'll break. So I think I know what the answer is going to be to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What, when you came off that first deployment, uh, your more difficult deployment, or I guess even your second one, but especially after that first one, and you came back, and as you said, you know, your wife was, you know, it's like a, meeting her again for the first time, you know, a, a different person. There's so much that's happened and transpired. Were, did you ever, were you exposed to civilians that you had known before and now saw after and saw, wow, they're still carefree as all, as though none of this happened. You know, they still, they don't have that, that weight, that sobriety of, of extreme experience that your wife and you had just gone through. And you're like, well, you know, uh, you kind of had outgrown that or was there resentment or was there any sense of, yeah, geez, you know, I, I really just, you know, I aged 10 years in the last six months and these people are still going to TGI Fridays and, you know, having a drink and, and, you know, being swinging 20 somethings. Was there any sense of that? For me, there was, uh, just because of, you know, and I think many veterans or anybody who's been in a combat zone will, will tell you when you live at this 10 out of 10 for months on end, and that's, that's the human element of survival in those environments. And then you come home and life is great. And, and everything was just wonderful as far as me being home and experiencing love and the comforts of being in the United States again, but turning off, you can't turn off that throttle immediately. And you don't even realize that. And uh, even though I was in charge of helping my Marines understand combat stress and PTSD, um, I, I slowly came to understand that I was going through my own transition back at home. And I did harbor some resentment and some irritability and anger issues that my, my wife recognized before I did. I would, mm. I would, I would just struggle really unknowingly with trivial things, whether it was um, social media, TV, or or the casual the casual nature of you know some things that were going on in, in the country at the time. I would be like, well, gosh, what about this? And we yeah. got to be on the war train still. Men are still in harm's way, and 
you know, that, that was uh, a, a challenge for me. And, and I didn't talk about much in the book, but I did go through a little bit of, you know, my own, call it, you know, PTSD, combat stress of, of just hypervigilance. Sounds and noises set me off. Uh, I was jumpy for a while. And, it, and then the dreams, you know, I'd have on and off for a couple of years. And it just took me a while to get through that. Fortunately, I did fairly well. A, a, a lot of my, you know, Marines, you know, struggled for a lot longer and I was part of their healing process. So that evolution took a while and um, I did I did have some some transition of my own to do. What did you feel finally buttoned up that phase of your of your life where you were like, OK, I'm, I'm stable. I'm in harmony now. I'm, I'm not, you know, uh, harboring any resentments or any kind of stressors from my deployments and I'm kind of back to neutral ground. Yeah. How long did that take and what was there when did you know that you were finally back on level ground? You know, for me, I think being continuing my military service and actually going on a second deployment was probably what solidified my mm. understanding of who I was, where I was and where I was going the most. Even re-exposure to it, you know, in a in a positive way, you know, going back again. I I um, although it was it was rough and I didn't necessarily expect it. Man, that was my life, and I was I was in it, and um, I got to meet some of the greatest people I've ever known and worked with, and just um, accept uh, what what I was doing then and where I was going uh, in the future, and that I could only control so much of it. No matter how much I, you know, maybe want to uh, beat the walls or, or bang my fist, there was only so much I was in control of, and that's okay, and to be at peace with that. You know, I one of my pet peeves is that successful people often um, don't preach what they practice, uh, and I it, it, it annoys me because I see, I know many people whose um, public creed the th stuff they're willing to say is either contradictory or um, omits large parts of how I know they actually conduct their lives and doesn't give it full context. And what I appreciated about your book is that you are completely at ease and um, comfortable talking about your journey with faith in the book and, and how necessary that is for you and for others. And I'm going to preface this for those listening that might start to roll their eyes and go, oh, geez, I don't want to hear about religion and all that. And there's plenty of veterans that feel that way and certainly plenty of people in the civilian world. But I think it's I, I think that's a um, an unfair standard to hold that it's important to hear what works for people. And to me, your journey spiritually and with your religion is a key part of this story and is it's in, critically important that you acknowledge that and that you address it the way that you do. So let's start with what you first talked about, that you had been raised Roman Catholic and you felt like you were just going through the motions. Um, I think generally that's kind of how it is in organized religion that when you're a kid, you're going to be going through the motions because you don't have a lot of other experiences to bounce off of. Do you agree? Does that seem right to you? Or do you wish, is there a tinge of regret there that, boy, I wish I'd really internalize something more because um, to me, I, I don't know how one does that when you're a kid and you don't have life experience to balance 
uh, a religion off of. Yeah, I think I think you're right for sure there. And, um, you know, I appreciate your comments on on this part of the book. And you're right. I, I had to be vulnerable. And really, when I was writing the book, I committed to that of putting me out there on the pages and what I was experiencing, thinking or doing at those times. And that religion isn't one size fits all. And, you know, I know that, but this was part of my story. And so I was going to, you know, put it out there uh, for everybody to hear and make their own opinions. But yeah, you're right. I think when you're young, it is kind of going through the motions. And even into my 20s, you know, I was still to some extent, you know, going through the motions of understanding, all right, well, where does, where does God fit in my life? And that was an evolution that continued right on into, you know, my deployment in Iraq. How much has your faith changed since your deployments? Because I do, I, I think it goes without saying that anybody that successfully survives a combat deployment successfully um, has internalized a working operating system that works for them and has to have something that they believe in, something that can ground them. Um, and certainly you did. But how much more does that grow? How much more, in your life, how much more have you seen that grow and develop since then when suddenly life isn't at level 10 the whole time and now you're kind of becoming a civilian and you're petering along at a normal pace and driving in the speed limit? Uh, do you still find that you're, do you, do you go, eh, you know, eh, I could pray today or I could take it or leave it? Or do you find, no, I'm, I'm even deeper and further down the road now? Yeah, I, I would say that my the evolution of my faith uh, into my combat and military history, it just helped me complete the circle and understand that at, at my darkest hours, God will meet me there. And it may not be on my timing and it may not be perfect. And I can be sad, happy or mad at God, um, but that my faith lets me know that I'm not alone. And that I've got this, I've got this comfort because I have this understanding of of what um, of, of the role that God plays in my life, and really I think help me understand what it means to be at peace with where I am at in my life, and that I'm not ultimately in control. I might want to steer that ship, but. Um, I'm, I'm ultimately not the one that's going to, you know, determine the final destination, move towards it, um, go for mm-hmm. it. You know, God values that hard work, determination, and um, you you can you got to meet him halfway. There's no doubt about that. You know, you're not going to just throw up your hands and expect everything to go well. But, you know, one of the messages in my book is and, and, and kind of in the in the last chapter I allude to get your heart and mind balanced, get your body fit grab a fistful of courage and go after it. And that little motto involves the heart and mind, which is spirituality. And so for me, that came full circle in Iraq, understanding uh, where spirituality fits in my life and how to harness it. Do you still in your daily um, uh, prayers and daily attempt to, you know, stay in harmony, uh, do you still find yourself referring back to your combat experiences where you're like, okay, that guy just cut me off in traffic, but Hey, I'm not in Fallujah. Or is it now so internalized that it's you're, you're kind of past it and you've already built on that and you're just in a different place now. I think that 
Chris, that I check myself more than I may have before. Um, I may not necessarily, you know, refer back to being in Fallujah mm-hmm. and combat, but but I know that going through some of those experiences helped me not not be as reactive as I normally would or mm-hmm. um, be able to step into someone's shoes better than I used to step in someone else's shoes and maybe see their perspective with a different lens than I used to because of, you know, my experiences. And I'm very appreciative of that and value that. Um, Humility for sure has been a part of it for me, understanding how I can be confident and courageous, but still very humble because that always helps me be a better person and a better leader uh, and run my own medical practice and support, you know, the people that work for me. So those skills have have been uh, something that have uh, definitely improved as I've gone on in my years. That makes sense. So I want to shift gears totally to a more frivolous subject in case uh, everybody's um, getting too heavy uh, (laughs) listening because, I mean, you're dealing with heavy subjects and and this is uh, and but I want to shift to one one thing that I I relate to. I, I think it's the. One frivolous aspect of combat deployments is catching up on movies that you would never otherwise see. And you talk about, you know, uh, you're playing ping pong and Animal House is playing in the room next to you. And you're like, I've never actually seen that. And um, talk, talk a little bit about that, about the color of um, deployments and of kind of being immersed in someone else's culture. You're suddenly around, especially you as a, not just college educated, but a uh, medical school educated person. Now suddenly, you know, you're around grunts and you're around kids and, uh, you know, they're teenagers in your early 20s and they're listening to different music than you'd listen to. They're watching different uh, shows. How did that rub off on you? Did, did you? Are there times where you're like, boy, I'm not as open to, you know, uh, different stuff as I used to be? Or do you miss it? Or do you uh, are you glad that now you have your own headspace just to watch and, and listen to the stuff you like? <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely miss some of those aspects of being in, in a um, Marine Corps battalion. And of course, that was my experience. And just to set that up a little bit, what was so unique for me is, you know, there's just... In a, in a thousand man battalion, we were in an all male battalion, an infantry battalion. There's two physicians assigned when you're going into combat theater. So I was one of them, and and we're different. You know, they were officers. Number one, of course, there's other officers, but the vast majority of the other officers are Marine Corps officers. So we're Navy. And we wear the same uniform and we're expected to do everything else, you know, within that Marine Corps battalion. So we're really an anomaly. And um, I knew that when I was introduced to all the men and it took, you know, a long time to, I think, feel comfortable, you know, for me living in that environment. But I tell you, some of the Marine Corps officers were just some of the best guys I've ever known. They helped me feel comfortable. They, they wanted the doc on their, their side anyways for medical purposes. And then as, you know, I'm treating the Marines, you get to know them. You get to know these 18-year-old kids um, yeah. up to 20-somethings from all over the United States. And then you are immersed in their world. And it's kind of sink or swim. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. you've got to learn to understand them and what they're going through because you're living with them for the next couple years and then you're thrown into, you know, a military combat environment in, in Iraq out in the middle of nowhere. 
And so that was that was wild, kind of just getting used to that tribe. But yeah. I loved, you know, to answer some of your questions. I love some of the things that we did on deployment to to just pass time and get through it because I had the sense this is how it's been forever in in military history. You've got yeah. officers, you've got enlisted men, and that tradition of of um, that um, bond and and that understanding and how you're trained, you know, to respect mm-hmm. each other goes back centuries. And here I am, you know, living that. So we would, you know, we would get in little circles late at night sometimes, uh, and some of the guys would smoke cigars, some would play music, and we'd sit there in the pitch black out in our little base, yeah. you know, listening to the battle go on in the background and talk about home or talk about what had happened that day and just just being happy to, you know, I think be alive that day and and make fun. You know, I think a lot, what, one of the beauty of what's great about uh, military members is there's sense of humor that you develop because yeah. there's no other way to go forward. You've got to yeah. laugh about yeah. something and find joy in it or, or you'll just drown. So I'm going to ask you a really difficult question. Who that you never otherwise would have listened or watched did you develop an appreciation for because of your deployments? Uh, did you suddenly find yourself becoming a fan of Polly Shore movies? Did you find yourself listening to country music? What what was it that was there? Was there any takeaway where you're like, yeah, I, I first got my taste for this back in uh, back in Iraq? <laughs> okay, I hate to admit it, but and and I am because I'm putting it on your podcast. Me and a couple of the other officers became. Uh, Friends episode junkies. We watched <laughs> we watched a hundred episodes of Friends. <laughs> With, okay, so. so you admit? Did you miss it during the when it was actually on air? When it was actually uh, like in the nineties? I mean, and now you were coming back to it, or it was just, so it was totally off your radar up until deployment, or had you kind of been watching it and like, hey, now I get a chance to catch up on all of it. It had been very peripheral, you know, everybody loved Friends and watched it and things like that. But I think I was immersed in, you know, medical school and my studies, so yeah. I didn't have a lot of time. And so, so yeah, I had missed that boat and now I jumped back on board and we we loved it. <laughs> Can we psychoanalyze? Why was that? Why? What, what, what about Friends made it fun to watch? Oh, I think it's because it was just this, you know, quirky, funny uh, the life of these friends immersed in New York City, and um, it, it helped you just kind of forget where you were, and yeah. and it and it was really well done, you know. And these friends also, you, know, you kind of they, they gelled so well together. You got the sense that they loved each other and were important in each other's lives. So that's what I liked about it. Yeah, it's funny. I think when it comes to deployment movies. There's two general categories, ones that people watch because they want to relate to they want something to relate to their current experience or escapism where they want the diametric opposite of whatever it is they're dealing with. So it always seemed like it was a strange mix of like, you know, cinema verite war movie and, you know, ludicrous, goofy comedy. And there's kind of no in between. That was my experience anyway. I don't know if that's true for you. Yeah, I think you're right. Plus, I, you know, some some of the, the grunts were watching real maybe heavy stuff, even violent stuff. I didn't want any yeah. of that. So, yeah, I wanted the exact opposite of where I was. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I was a, I, I'm addicted to sitcoms of the 1990s, and I, that was like my deployment show. So I did do Friends 
uh, admittedly on on one deployment. And uh, yeah, I, I it, it's fun because also I think there's I think there's a political aspect to that too. It's the '90s. It's before 9/11. There's kind of more of a carefree attitude, and and yeah, there it's it's good escapism. I wanted to ask you. You talk about the the relationship between officers and enlisted men, and obviously, there's we're talking about the cultural differences. Where you're older, educated, you're dealing with kids that might have gotten out of high school and now are grunts, and all that. Did you ever? I don't know if you ever thought of this, so I'm just going to throw this out here and see how this, how you how you treat this general subject. It strikes me that one major difference between you and almost everyone else you served with is that you were doing the job in combat that was on purpose with the rest of your life. You'd gone to medical school. You wanted to be a doctor, and now you were in Iraq being a doctor. Now, you didn't necessarily want to do it in combat. That wasn't why you went to medical school, but you were. it was on purpose, whereas most people in the military, not all, but most, um, it's something they did and it's something they do while they're in the military. And then when they get out of the military, they do something else. Did, I'm going to kind of just throw that out there. Cause I, I don't know how you take that. Was that, did that ever cross your mind? Did you ever see something where it's like, uh, do you ever feel any resentment from people? Cause they're like, well, you're a doctor and you're kind of doing, you know, this is what you do anyway. I, I'm just trying to pay for college or something. Was there ever anything like that? Or was there a sense of, um, peace that you felt because you're like, Hey, I'm on purpose. Um, and I'm sensitive to the fact that others might be like, crap. I just, after my first firefight, I just realized military life is not for me. And now I'm trying to backpedal my way out of this. Did any of that ever, I'm just again, I'm throwing a bag of ideas at you, but how did, how does that strike you? Was that ever a valid issue for you? For me relating with the men, uh, I never felt any uh, resentment, and if anything, um, I I felt that they were just happy to have me there, and yeah. uh, you know understood that I did have this role as a physician. Usually, when I'm stateside in a hospital, you know, and and that I was plucked from the hospital, and that's a unique part of of military medicine. Is that when you're in residency as a military uh, physician, you can be uh, pulled out before you're done with residency, and and that uh, I mentioned in the book was what happened to me, uh, and that is not the case for civilian doctors. You have to finish residency before mm-hmm. you can practice independently. So I was plucked out and thrown into this Marine Corps battalion, and and they knew that. So they, I think they knew that this was, you know, a ruffling of my world, so to speak, mm. and we're just happy mm-hmm. to have me there. So that part was great for me in, in relating with them. For me personally, I was a little bit, um, you know, and, and, and I alluded to this in the book. I, I had a, you know, chink thrown in my chain, even though I chose this military life and that's what I had committed to. It was such an unknown event after 9-11, just being catapulted yeah. into a combat environment within about a year um, of 9-11 and just a year of internship training. So <laughs> I, was, I was a baby doctor, you know, and any, yeah. any physician will tell you after just one year of internship, you're still a baby physician and, and you're, you know, growing your wings. Yeah. So I was thrust into this <clears throat> combat environment that was this animal that would just kept growing and growing until boom, there we are on the front lines in Fallujah. And it took me a while to come to grips with that. 
Um, but when I did, that's when that's when I did my best work when I fully committed. Go ahead. So was it was it that you came to grips with it because there was an insecurity about it and you're like, hey, I'm not ready for this, or was it coming to grips with um, just the nature of combat and going, oh, crap, I got to get wrap my head around a combat zone. Yeah, I think I was. I I think it was a little bit of both that, and I wouldn't call it necessarily an insecurity, but it was, wow, is this really happening right now? Are we really, mm-hmm. you know, um, heading into this intense battle in Fallujah, where I'm going to have a whole bunch of wounded Marines, you know, put on my plate yeah. right here and now. And so obviously that, you know, there, there, there was no second guessing what I was going to do. And if I had the ability to handle it at the time, because I did, and I, I didn't get into all the details, but I, but I had a lot of combat medical training before Fallujah. Thankfully, the Navy did a good job, which Mm. civilian um, physicians don't do. You know, they would send me out to combat casualty care courses in Texas. I'd go you know, on to um, work with trauma teams at, at USC County Hospital. And that prepared me, but nothing fully can prepare you for what it's going to be like in that combat environment when bullets start flying and mortars are coming in and rockets are going off in the background. And then you've got a, a wounded Marine right in front of you. So yeah. that movie comes full circle and full gravity once you're put into that combat environment. It's kind of like when... Maverick finally gets into the dogfight of his life in Top Gun and, you know, he has to do a reality check before it clicks in yeah. and he goes to work. Yeah. yeah, yeah, 100%. It makes total sense. What do you prefer, boredom or danger? <laughs> now or back then? <laughs> uh, let's let's take it in the uh, military context. Yeah. I think, yeah, let's stay there. If, yeah. I had to, if I had to choose one of those words, I would choose the danger one with a few yeah. caveats. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, yeah. that's only sensible. Yeah, it's because it, it, I think one of the the um, parts of your book, and it comes up again and again. Um, but one of the themes I think that we keep you keep coming back to is that sense of boredom, and what happens when people are bored, and the 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 time to think. And it, to me, it was interesting that you did start to write this while you were there. Because to me, I, I know personally, I didn't want to do any writing. I didn't want to do any thinking. I wanted to stay right in that moment because I was like, the second I started thinking, this is all going to start sucking a whole lot more. Um, but so it was interesting to me. And, and I think, um, I don't know if I want to use the word courageous. It, it seems like it worked for you. Like you were like, you knew exactly what buttons you needed to push for yourself. And th- this was a good safety valve to relieve some tension, do some writing and maximize that downtime. Um, so yeah, talk to talk to me a little bit about the dangers of boredom and how you dealt with it and your fear of boredom, if you will. Yeah, I could see it in the Marines around me when they had too much downtime Um time on their hands, you know, sitting in a hot tent in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Marines would get in fights with each other. I had to handle a few injuries from those kind of situations. And I, I could just see how it w- would wear on them when they didn't have a focus, an objective, you know, because that's what Marines do well. They have a mission to accomplish. And also for me, as the deployment went on, I realized having an objective or at least something to occupy my time, that's what helped you get from one day to the next. 
and mm-hmm. to the next because it's like Groundhog Day. You know, there's no weekends. Every day is a work yeah. day. And um, for me and, and the Marines, having having an objective and a finish line to move towards, it, it's what helped you just get through each day in, in one piece and knowing that one of those next days is going to lead to home. Yeah. And for yeah. me, I felt like I was earning the right to eventually go home, do my job, complete my mission, um, and and then I'll earn the right to go home with it, with all the rest of my men. I think I asked you about this um, when we when you did the weekly havoc, but I want to ask again, um, just to mine this one more time. I want to ask you about um, the flight home and your feelings, your emotions, in that sense that that reality that holy crap, I, I did it and I made it. Um, talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind. When I, I'll, I'll, I remember it very vividly. When I boarded the plane, leaving Iraq, and we took off, I felt the weight lift, and I just knew that we were leaving this, you know, traumatic event that we had made it through, and we were going to someplace beautiful, where. I had people who loved me and that I was going to be back in a safe environment. And even even my my adrenaline level, my sense of calm, safe and safety, it just settled in, you know, when we t- when we took off. Um and and that was a feeling that stuck with me for a long time. Um it it, it was something that, you know, wasn't artificial and that gave me just a sense of hope for the future. What, when, how long was your turnaround? How long was your demob process when you came back? Did they give you, it was a week or two weeks. How long did it take for them to actually get you guys, uh, all your paperwork done and medical stuff and all that. And now go on leave. Yeah, it was pretty quick. I want to say 48 hours. Really? Uh, yeah. We, yep. Got home, wow. turned in our gear did, um, did the process, the paperwork processing. And if I remember, we were, we were on leave within just a couple days. Wow. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. So not all the battalion arrived, um, on the same day, but most of us did. And it was beautiful. You know, we, we landed at March air force base and, you know, jumped on the same white buses that brought us there, drive home, went to the ammo depot, turned in our weapons. And then, uh, um, back at Pendleton, got off the bus in formation. We marched into um, about a half mile march into the reception area where all the families were and, you know, cheers and laughter and love. And then we were released from formation and we ran to our families. So it had all the elements of, you know, that movie homecoming. Yeah. Tell me about when you actually left the military. How did that feel um, that day? Was there was it relief? Was it? Um, you, did, you, did you? Was there any regret? Was there any twin, uh, pangs of hey, maybe I should stick it out for twenty? What, what were your feelings when you left? When I finished my service, which was seven years of active duty, it uh, the the final months were just shortly after coming home from my second deployment to Iraq, and at that time I was really feeling confident and thankful that I had served for this amount of time, but that I was finishing my service. And I knew I was resigning my commission because I wanted to start a medical practice. And I had been kind of 
planning that for a couple of years as I was finishing my military service, what it would look like for me to exit and open my own medical practice. And I had dreamed about that for a long time. And the military gave me a lot of the leadership skills I felt I needed to open a medical uh, practice and, and um, do well. And so to answer your question, although there was a lot of me that I knew was going to miss the military, my wife and I at that time, we were finally saying, hey, we'd love to have kids. And there was still a deficiency of military physicians who were kind of deployment ready. So I knew staying in, I knew I was just going to go right back again, probably to Iraq. And uh, we had we had just we had had enough of that military life and my wife was ready to be done. So we were very thankful to be finished. Funny enough, a a recurring dream that I've had for (laughs) 10 years, (laughs) for 10 years is that I'm on that third deployment. I swear. (laughs) And it's so real. And every single time I have it, it's like, I can't believe I'm back here again. (laughs) And I'll wake up and go, oh, my God, I'm not back there. (laughs) It's just a dream. It's just a dream. It's just a dream. That's right. So so was it a sense of relief? Like when you finally leave base for the last time and you're like, I was it, yeah. And did you feel like a physical release? Or was it like, oh wow, my neck can relax and everything like that? I did because you know, I you know your your life is tied to the military. Everything you do, even even on the weekends, uh, revolves about around you know your active duty. You put on the uniform when you go to work, and um, yeah. I loved it. I loved wearing the uniform, saluting the flag, and saying, getting to say that I'm a Navy military medical officer. Loved it. But that time uh, ran its course for me, and I, I did feel a sense of relief, kind of just knowing that, all right, I've got my, my whole life ahead of me, and I can go uh, start a new chapter. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about your next chapter, if you will. Uh, and I may, maybe I mean that literally or figuratively. Uh, I know I asked you before on the, uh, when, we, when you did the Weekly Havoc about future books that you may write. Uh, where do you stand now with that? Are you still thinking that hey, maybe there's another book in me? Yeah, I could say it, I could say it's still maybe a few people have asked me, and I've you know kind of started thinking what what that book would look like or what I would write about, and you know a few things have kind of come to my mind. Whether it's uh, some people have said you know gosh, at the end of your book, uh, I started thinking. Oh, what happens? What happened next? What happened to this character? Mm. You know, um, mm. what happened to you? Where are you and Katie? Um, what happened to some of the wounded Marines? That kind of thing. And I and I started thinking, wow, you're right. You know that I can see, and that that was a compliment actually to to have you know readers ask sure. those questions. Yeah. So I started throwing that around. I've also been thinking about trying to connect with some of the Marines that I have not seen for years, including a couple of the most severely wounded men that I treated in the field. Uh, I'm, I'm, I've actually uh, recently found contact information for one of them who's in the book. And I've been thinking about trying to connect with him just to see how he's doing and if there's any way that I can support him. Uh, and, 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 and in addition, I'm working with a couple foundations, including the Gary Sinise Foundation, who does support the most severely wounded veterans. So perhaps there's a, a, a source of help that I can provide there. Yeah. 
are there people that you've been in touch with that you treated? Uh, you obviously haven't reached out to this one uh, guy yet, but are there others that you've been in touch with prior to this? That I treated in theater. They treated in theater. Anybody who was, was, let's just say more severely wounded. I have not seen since we got back from Iraq. I've been in contact with many of the military officers who I'm still really close friends with. Um, You know, a couple of them had some superficial wounds. (laughs) Some of them were (laughs) self-inflicted. But but, yeah, the other Marines that um, were more severely wounded, um, shot, or, you know, one of them had had an RPG canoe through his shoulder. Those men I have not seen since I returned from deployment. Not my call, but man, that sounds like an interesting story if, if you chose to tell it, um, to capture that and, and, and the knock-on effects of that since you last saw each other. Boy, um, that would be a hell of a thing. Listen, Dr. Donnelly Wilkes, this is awesome, man. Thanks a million for doing this. You bet. Hey, your questions were great and probing, and I love that because these are some things I haven't talked about in other interviews, and we got, we got to dive deep on a lot of those items. It's great. Well, yeah, and it, it meant a lot, and it's um, it's always great to talk to you. You, you. There's a lot of color in your writing and a lot of different themes and subjects that you bring up, and uh, I recommend everybody, again, Code Red Fallujah. Um, I just can't recommend it highly enough. Listen, we'll talk to you down the road, but thanks a million. Sounds good. Uh, for your listeners, they can get the book wherever books are sold, and um, whether or not they buy the book, I love to hear from anyone. My website is coderedfallujah.com, and I'm at docwilkes1 on Instagram. Love to hear from you. Outstanding. Thanks, Doc. Thanks, Chris. Okay, I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Donnelly Wilkes. You've been listening to Savage Wonder, the podcast about warriors and artists and a production of the Veterans Repertory Theater. The opinions expressed in this episode do not represent anything or anyone other than the person that actually gave them. You can stay in touch with us at vetrep.org. Uh, We will have show notes. We may have some show alibis at savagewonder.podbean.com or at vetrep.org or wherever you're listening to this podcast. We want to hear your feedback. Please give us a follow. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Veterans Repertory Theater. I'll spell repertory because we made the tactical mistake of naming it Veterans Repertory Theater and nobody can spell repertory. So it's Veterans Repertory, R-E-P-E-R, T-O-R-Y, again, R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y, theater. And theater is the American spelling E-R, not R-E. So at Veterans Repertory Theater or on Twitter at Vet Rep Theater. If you're on iTunes, we'd love your five-star review attached to whatever questions, comments, and snide remarks you want to leave us. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of the Veterans Repertory Theater. We'll see you next time when we dive further into the savage wonder of it all.